Hello and welcome to episode 149 of the CogniCast, a podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. I'm Russ Olson and I can't tell you how good it is to be saying those words again. It's been just over a year since our last episode, way too long. So what happened? Well, business happened. Just over a year ago, we got so busy here at the house that Closure built that we came to the point where we had to make some hard decisions. And one of the hardest was to put the Cognicast on hold. It's not that this podcast isn't important to us, it is. It was just that we had come to the point where everyone's mental and physical health was more important. We were really that busy. But we're back. We're back with a new episode. We're back with a new host, Gadi Shaban, and a great guest, none other than closure slash security expert LVH. So since it has been so long, I'm going to skip the usual morning announcements and go right to Gadi and LVH in episode 149 of the Cognicast. We are back. Hello and welcome to the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people who make it. I'm Gadi Shaban, and this week it's my great pleasure to invite LVH to our show. Welcome, LVH. Thanks for having me. Well, we like to start out with a question about relating a piece of art, an experience of art that you've had, but I want to preempt it. I want to preempt that question, hold it for a second, to ask you a different question, which is, what is crypto short for? Crypto is obviously short for cryptography. I, I don't know what else it would stand for. Well, there you have it. That's the definitive answer for crypto. Crypto equals cryptography. Well, um, I understand you work for Laticora. Tell me, what do you what do you do, and what is Laticora? Um, so Laticora is a consultancy. Uh, and we bootstrap security services for startups. Um, so the idea is uh, instead of hiring um, your first security person, which is a little bit of an unknown quantity, uh, in a lot of cases that person has uh, effectively an impossible job description because they have to be an expert at everything, um, you hire us uh, and uh, we engineer a service that is as close of a proxy as possible to this idea of hiring a mythical unicorn security person who is good at everything and particularly good at starting practices. I see. I see. So, uh, what are the what are the different hats that such a mythical security person would uh, would wear? What are the different types of roles that um, they would play? Oh, sure. So, um, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, we tend to categorize them uh, across um, what we call practices. So, for example, there's an application security practice. Um, and those people would be looking for, I don't know, cross-site scripting vulnerabilities or remote code execution or, or that sort of thing. Um, I run the security operations practice, um, which is mostly like cloud and infrastructure security. 
Um, also, um, what I call the how a bill becomes a law for, for a line of code. Um, so you, you know, a line of code is in a PR, PR gets merged, a uh, bunch of things kick off uh, eventually uh, that ends up in prod. What are all the steps in between? Um, but also uh, network penetration testing. Um, you know, occasionally we'll find interesting things like, hey, there's a part of prod running on Heroku that we had no idea about and <laughs> didn't mention that before. Let's talk about that. Uh, and then finally, corporate security, which is, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there, but for example, um, uh, SSO, uh, a lot of people use G Suite, uh, and the good news is G Suite makes it very easy to uh, attach all sorts of applications to uh, your G Suite uh, install, and the bad news is G Suite makes it very easy to attach all sorts of applications to your uh, G Suite install. We found like all sorts of, you know, cases where um, you know, 15 random applications that nobody's used in a long time have like full access to email and full access to drive and all sorts of other terrifying permissions. Um, but also looking at, you know, for example, GitHub, um, GitHub permissions, you know, a lot of people that, you know, GitHub strongly encourages people to use their personal GitHub accounts. Um, and one of the side effects of that is, you know, if you have a, an SSH key that has been lovingly copied over from every machine that you've had since you were 12, uh, then, uh, you know, there's not a lot of guarantees that that key stays where it's supposed to. Uh, and obviously, when, when I compromise that key, I might suddenly get push access to uh, to a production system. So, um, so yeah, that's it. So, uh, you know, obviously, there's uh, those are categories, and there are plenty of things that sort of fall in between. Um, but that's that's how we um, how we categorize it. And that's kind of what I meant with like that mythical unicorn, you know, impossible JD. Nobody could possibly ever do that job, is because. To me, when somebody says that they're going to hire a security person uh, with you know, no further asterisks or qualifications, that sounds like somebody saying they're going to hire a programmer. Um, where you know, uh, there's 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 a lot of specialties, there's a lot of um, you know technologies that you want someone to be familiar with, and, and you know, just because um, well, we're very fortunate to be most of us hopefully closure programmers, so closure is somewhat unique in in being able to work on both the front end and the back end, but. Uh, nevertheless, you know the, the the care and feeding and being able to set up a Kubernetes cluster running, uh, I don't know, and then like talking to Datomic and then having people who are very skilled at designing um, wonderful front end UX, like those are two very different skills, right? And everyone sort of accepts that, uh, but then at the same time they'll say like, "Oh, I'm gonna hire a security person," which to me sounds you know equally silly. Yeah. So when they so when they hire you, as in your your firm. It's usually people who are serious about security from from the from day one, really, of of, um, of their company. It's not somebody who wants security as an afterthought, right? Right, right, and and it's not quite day one. Uh, we tend to work best with um, uh, with companies that are uh, a, a little bit more established. So let's say, like, I don't know, maybe like a dozen engineers or so, mm -hmm. um, because uh, a uh, if, if you'll forgive the uh, the cliche, uh, we're we're trying to teach you how to fish, uh, but we are kind of like in the boat and holding the reel and helping you cast. Uh, so what that means is, you know, we're we're on your GitHub, right? Like if that's where you develop infrastructure as code and where you develop software, then we're going to be right there with you. Uh, we're on your Slack and that sort of thing. But it is very important to us that we are, you know, a, a security team that is just running after everyone cleaning up the messes is is not as effective as a security team that is improving the practices of the rest of the company. Uh, in the same way that obviously that's 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 a two way street, right? Like we learn from the ops people and we learn from from the um, the product people uh, uh, all the time as well. But it's it's important that that goes both ways. I see. 
Yeah, even even one of those hats, the I think you said there were it was AppSec, SecOps, and then the the corporate security was that the last one? Uh, there's AppSec. Uh, so usually we say that there's five. Uh, there's uh, there's AppSec, um, uh, corporate security, uh, cloud security, network testing or network penetration testing, and corporate security. Good. Oh wow! Did so I just repeat a... one? No, I don't think so. But there, so it's not right. just three hats. It's like a whole rack of hats, and each one of them you can go really deep on, and probably a lot of companies don't even scratch the surface of one of those hats. Yeah, we tend to find that there are companies that are, um, you know, that are uh, that are highly technical, um, and they tend to have their act together from, let's say, like a software perspective or a infrastructure perspective, they tend to be doing pretty well. And like a lot of our recommendations are, are really more sort of best practices focused. Um, but then at the same time, uh, you know, occasionally uh, when that does break, you'll find that the way that it breaks is sort of is, is, is cataclysmic, right? It's sort of, you know, it's, you, you miss this like core, core subtle feature of how browsers work. And therefore none of this, you know, none of this actually works the way you think it does. Um, but but then uh, where where we regularly see um, see uh, I get surprising to the client, let's put it that way, uh, not necessarily pleasantly surprising, uh, uh, is is in the the corpsec bucket where, like I said, you know things like, hey, did you know that this random um, this random G Suite application have had access to everything in your Google Drive, which by the way is basically everything about your company. Uh, and uh, you know that that sort of that sort of nonsense. Or, or another really common one is um, uh, okay, pop quiz. Google Groups is it a um, access control tool or a mailing list manager? I would say it's a mailing list manager. Uh, trick question. The answer is both, and it depends which like product team you talk to at Google. Uh, so uh, it's it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but so but the the um, the joke is that it is actually both, right? So um, there are plenty of tools, uh, particularly third party ones, that will use Google Groups as uh, Google Groups membership as a uh, way to do access control. Uh, and then you know from from the internal perspective, you know Google very much treats. Um, uh, Google Groups as a as a mailing list manager, and occasionally what you'll see is there will be like you know engineering at company.com, um, and uh, time progresses. Usually it's like people manually being added to that list, and then you know some uh, member from a different org, like a manager somewhere, wants more visibility into that, and they uh, they open up engineering access. And what they didn't realize is you know we come around, we come along like six months to a year later, and like oh guess what I just gave myself admin to everything. Uh, because there was a there was a, a Google group that gated that, um, and that was you know open access to in some cases the internet, but fortunately in most cases it's you know if you have a if you compromise one account you can just let yourself into that Google group and by letting yourself into the Google group you let yourself into the dashboard. Ugh. And that tends to be the sort of thing where you know sometimes it feels like uh, some bugs that you describe are just sort of like you know are you a wizard. Um, and then some bugs are just sort of like, no, no, no. It turns out the back door was unlocked the entire time and open, like visibly open. Just nobody, <laughs> nobody bothered to look. Um, so, and I, I don't want to be, you know, uh, I don't want to be derogatory, right? Like this is, this is just really, really, really subtle. And you know, we didn't know this before we started, uh, kind of like from first principles, trying to look at it, like, oh yeah, well, what are all of the things that we should be looking at? And you know, a lot of one of the things I like about the work at a lot of core is a lot of what we do is, is R and D focused, right? And there are plenty of 
of really, really good security teams where um, you know, we learn from them and they learn from us where um, you know, we're telling them like, hey, here's this thing that we found and you just see them go, you know, oops, sorry. Uh, you just see them go, uh, go white and they're like, I will be back. But I need to go check some stuff. <laughs> um, we have an so, incident. <laughs> yes, exactly. This this might be a P zero. Uh, thank you for telling me this on a Friday night. Uh, um, so yeah. Well, um, so I've been help helping maintain this AWS API client that um, is under the Cognitet Labs umbrella, and uh, you know it's a it's a nice AWS data-driven client for closure. And I noticed last year you opened up an issue on the tracker that I wanted to ask you about. And you, you said, <laughs> I need the ability to require every single AWS service. Can I, and I, I was always wondering when I saw that issue, what motivated that? Was that, was that some security work that you're performing? Are you, are you hitting all AWS services? Are you fuzz testing? What 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 motivated that? Uh, I do solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. Um, the, <laughs> the one thing that I know is that apparently at one point there was a some kind of cross-functional meeting in AWS where two different AWS engineers DM'd me through a back channel and went like, what are you people doing? <laughs> um, uh, and apparently it was a consequence of me filing a bunch of similar tickets that were extremely suspicious, uh, apparently to AWS teams. Uh, but like on the actual ABS SDKs where I pointed out that like, hey, you know, your SDK works fine, but actually your models were wrong uh, and here's why it's wrong. And they, they were, you know, the, sometimes the ticket was closed with like, you know, no comment beyond. Yeah, those, those models are really internal. You're not supposed to pay attention to them, uh, except apparently when you're, you know, uh, writing a, uh, a closure uh, data-driven uh, API client because of, you know that, that's the, the same sort of, of, of data that, that you're using. So for for um, the audience who um, may not know what I'm referring to, um, if you imagine like something like I don't know like um, Raml or Swagger Open API, you know something along those lines. Uh, imagine that, but um, significantly less pleasant, generally speaking, um, but just very specific to describing how AWS APIs work. So most of the AWS SDKs are auto-generated from those descriptions. So they, they share a, a sort of like common model language. Uh, and so even though the, uh, you know, for a long time, the, the I think the, the default AWS clients for, for closure was Amazonica, uh, I mean, probably still is because it's, it's been around for such a long time. Um, and what that, it, it wraps the Java API. Um, so, um, it, it doesn't have to care about how the models work at all, but if you if you really want to get more insight into um, which um, uh, you know API calls are available, then you would do that through uh, through inspecting those models. And occasionally, you will find API calls that you were never supposed to call, uh, and then you get an <laughs> AWS TAM who is very inquisitive about exactly what it is you're doing there, uh, and could you please stop? <laughs> Yeah, you so find, I, I you find really, out a lot from this from those models and about you know what what services return and when they don't match the models. It's been it's been interesting to, to see that over the last um, little bit since the since this SDK has been out. But okay, <laughs> it's it's been very interesting to me because it kind of feels like I'm spelunking in. Um, in, in sort of you know the the ruins of an ancient civilization, and I'm kind of seeing the shadows on the wall of 
um, uh, of you know how AWS operates internally, having no visibility, no real visibility into it. Um, and uh, and uh, you know everything. If I ever sound like I'm saying something bad about AWS, let me be perfectly clear. It is still my favorite cloud to work on. It's coming from a place of uh, let's call it love, uh, but uh, it's it's uh, you know it is uh, sincere. It, it is sincere criticism, but it is you know in, intended in a positive sense. But it does really really feel like you know there are a lot of problems within AWS where as long as they're within one team, right, it will get solved on 9 p.m. on a Sunday. And if it requires any kind of like integration across teams, then Bezos himself could not descend from Mount St. Helens to make it happen. <laughs> so it's 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 been it's been very interesting to work with. Like in particular, a good example of this is IAM, right? Like so, identity and access management. And um, you know, you find all sorts of bizarre stuff. Like the in the budgets API, um, there's like a um, an API call, and I think that the API call is called edit budgets, and the permission is called update budget or something like that. And the same thing with remove. It's like, for some reason, they just slightly changed the verb. Uh, and there, there's no, no particular uh, reason for that. And, and um, when you try to get, you know, try and, I don't know, get that resolved or at least documented somewhere, the IAM team is like, yeah, I don't know. It sounds like budget's problem. Budget's is like, what are you talking about? It's obviously IAM's problem. They're like, people, y'all work at the same company, right? I don't, I don't know why it's my problem to like PM you. Uh, like find someone <laughs> whose job it is and simultaneously care about these two products. Um, so, um, and, and again, this is coming from, this is coming from places of it's, uh, frustration, but still love. It's love. Um, it's, it's tough love. You know, you can love yeah, the API. Yeah. You still want it to, still want it to be good and get, and to get better. <laughs> Uh, but but I realize I also have dodged your question. So but uh, but yes, we are definitely. So one of the things that we do internally is we look at a, a you know a giant pile of um, AWS APIs, um, which is to say, effectively, I mean, ideally all of them. Uh, uh, obviously, when reInvent uh, pops up, then you know they or, or they launch like six new services. And it takes me a little bit to like you know read the documentation to know what I'm looking at. Um, but um, but the idea is that we want to be able to monitor those services before any of our customers um, ask for them is one of the ways that I want to be like, you know, the, a positive security team, uh, because there, there are a lot of people that we work with with clients who have came, come from like larger, you know, fortune 500 security teams. And I, I don't want to paint all of them with one brush, but they definitely have had experiences where, you know, if you want to be successful as a engineer in product development, your job is to hide whatever it is that you're doing from the security team because they're going to say no. <laughs> they're going for, to slow you know, down. It, it's a lot easier. Yeah, it's a lot easier for them to, for for them to say no than it is to understand what you're doing. Um, so um, and you know we we want to be the and, and I have definitely been on the receiving end of that, right? Or sorry, I guess it depends how you look at receiving end. I have definitely been the uh, you know the product security person who uh, yeah. desperately wants internal security to stop looking at our stuff because um, you know this is painful. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, we want to be a positive security person. And one of the ways that, uh, that that manifests itself is, um, I never want to have to say, oh, sorry, you can't use, you know, AWS state machines because we don't know how to audit it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to be in as good as position as possible. Um, sorry, I think the service is called step functions and then the, the resource is called state machines, but whatever, you know what I mean? So any, pick an AWS service, right? Like I want to be in as good as possible of a position to be able to say yes, right? I want to be able to say yes to people all the time. And the, the upside to that is that, you know, the one in 20 times where I say no, or maybe the, the five in 20 times that I say, 
uh, could you please do this instead? Then they're going to remember the 15 times that I said yes with no, no asterisk. This sounds great. You know, hit me up if you run into any trouble. Um, and you know they're going to remember that I'm 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 not just trying to stonewall them because it's, it, it does make my job easier. That's true, um, but it's not particularly productive. Um, so uh, you know I want to be able to say yes as much as possible. And the main way to do that is you know make sure that you're ahead of every AWS service, and that is why that is why I care about looking at every model uh, in advance. And you find some bugs that way. So it's a positive take on security. It's a you know let me let me check these things out. We make sure it's it's consistent, and I don't want to get in your way. But I'm going, I will have I will have to get in, in your way if there if there really is a security uh, issue. But but generally, you know, you want people to make use of the of the APIs. Makes sense. Yep, that's the goal. So transitioning from AWS security, I was I wanted to ask you whether and what well I, I know it's related but what are the closure specific security considerations that people should maybe keep in mind or pay pay more attention to um i was wondering if you could maybe shine a light on some of those some of those things that uh particularly affect closure programmers that's a really excellent question. Um, so, from from my perspective, like I'm looking at closure as a tool for Blue Team for Blue, oh, Sorry, try that again. I'm looking at closure uh, from the perspective of of uh, a Blue Team, right? So, um, for for people who are unfamiliar, um, the terms Blue Team and Red Team mean like defensive or offensive. Um, so, I'm I'm looking at this um, as a tool for being able to do data analysis on, I don't know, stuff coming out of Terraform or stuff coming out of Kubernetes or stuff coming out of the AWS API. Um, and, and for that, it's it's awesome, right? Like tools like, you know, we use Spectre, CoreLogic, you know, CoreMatch, like there are so many things that that are, are so much easier to express um, uh, and, and we use uh, data log as well. There's so much, so many things that are so much easier to express than, um, than they are in, in let's, say, let's say more vanilla programming languages like, I don't know, Python or Ruby or something. Um, so, but um, you know, the way uh, I'm guessing your question was more uh, around, like, from an application security perspective. Like, if I am developing an application in um, Closure, you know, what is the what is the thing that I'm supposed to be worried about? And and I think um, you know, I'll I'll separate that in a in a couple of buckets. So first of all, it is I'm I'm super happy that React is uh, is as popular as it is, and then you know, the, obviously the the um, you know, closure side of that being uh, Ohm and Reagent and Rum, and uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm missing another wrapper there. But um, <clears throat> because you know, React has done absolute wonders for for frontend security. I think you know, you have to like literally the method that you call to make yourself XSS vulnerable is dangerously set inner HTML. You have to type the word dangerously, <laughs> right? Like it's awesome, right? It's it's perfect from a security perspective. I'm super happy about that. And and so the the you know we can we can. At some point, you know, I'd be happy to discuss like XSS from first principles. Um, but the way that I think about cross-site scripting as, as a style of vulnerability is that it is, you know, it's, it's almost fundamentally like a like a, a parsing problem, right? Because the real problem is that you are injecting a string without really knowing what type it is, right? You don't have like enough information about it to be able to inject it in the right place. And you know, that sounds. Uh, almost uh, like it almost trivializes XSS as a vulnerability, but you know, keep in mind first of all, most of them are, are really, really serious because the fact of what you get with XSS is you get to do, you know, you get to execute JavaScript as the user, 
right? But if you think about a lot of modern applications, they're a fully static front end dealing with an API. So if you tell me that I can execute JavaScript, then I can do literally anything the user can. Uh, and that was that's always sort of been the case, but it's much easier with with a with like a you know a strict front end um, and, and API design, which is, tends to be more you know more modern than like the classic. Uh, I'm going to produce a static HTML page. Um, so I think React has done wonders there, just because through the um, you know through the virtual DOM, um, React doesn't have that problem because it has like a, a real uh, it has a data representation of what it wants to do. Right, like it, it knows that this thing is a uh, you know is, is is some inline JavaScript because it's a non-click handler or whatever. Um, so um, you know it has a lot more information and therefore it's able to do things correctly. So that was a really long-winded way of saying uh, you know I think as long as you're within the React um, ecosystem, then uh, you know it's 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 you have to go out of your way to shoot yourself in the foot. Um, so uh, and then in the on the back end, I think things are a little bit less rosy in the back end, particularly something that concerns me is when if you're you're mixing um, uh, API responses and um, web responses, so like actual things destined for a browser versus things destined for, um, uh, you know, or I shouldn't say things destined for a browser, because if you're doing HTML, uh, XML HTTP request, then it's still destined for a browser. But I mean, like, you know, HTML versus JSON being the typical example. Right. Um, then uh, I'm really concerned when people shift those in the same um, ring handler um, because you know you can do all of these things safely with ring. Like ring defaults does a pretty good job, um, but as soon as you mix them, then um, you know you um, it, it it gets tricky to to make sure that you know does every one of your handlers have C surf protection where it's supposed to, right? For example, so that that gets a little bit dicier, um, and then you know I think a, a uh, it's 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 doable. Like it's fine. You just need to you know do it consistently and and uh, ideally not just try to ship everything into the same place. Uh, but if you separate those, then I think mostly you're you're fine. Well, that's a you know that's an interesting answer to a pretty vague question on my, my part. I guess I was leading you towards AppSec, but what what you said was really interesting in, in terms of closure strengths. Uh, you mentioned core match and core logic. Are, are you suggesting that a lot of the work that you do in closure isn't necessarily, you know, securing back ends, securing front ends, but also using closure tools to analyze infrastructure or, you know, build integrity or things where you treat uh, security as a data analysis problem? Is that, is that yeah, a exactly. fair estimation? Yeah. Exactly, and so 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 two two sort of like asterisks to that. So one, um, we do have clients who use Clojure, um, not as many as I would like, but uh, we do have clients who use Clojure. Um, and when uh, when a client uses Clojure, uh, you know, it's mostly for for product development, right? Like they're not. Um, I, I don't think any of them are you know doing infrastructure management with Clojure or something like that. Um, so. Um, they're writing closure applications, and then obviously we'll review that application the way that we review other applications. Um, and then, but then for us internally, um, you know, we build power tools to help us do our jobs. Um, and for the, it's not true that all, all of Ladacora is definitely not a, uh, a closure shop. So um, Thomas Tachek, uh, who is uh, famous slash infamous for uh, being the person with the most karma points on Hacker News uh, is uh, is uh, so he's our he's our um, he runs our AppSec practice, um, 
and uh, he's uh, it's very strange. He really likes Go, and he's like he's like you know smart and and super competent and stuff. Um, and, but uh, in, in all seriousness, like he he uh, you know he's a he's a big Go fan. Uh, he's written a bunch of Lisp, right? Like it's not that he hasn't been uh, been uh, you know subjected to the light. Um, but uh, but yeah, so they they do you know they do a, a bunch of Go, a bunch of Python uh, for SecOps. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the case that you know uh, um, it, Go is probably a good idea for them. Um, for SecOps, exactly what you said, right? Like a lot of the things that we're doing are absolutely data analysis problems. And and the, the second asterisk that I want to add there is when security people in particular hear data analysis problem, like there's a lot of security products out there that are like you know log management. Uh, and that are going to do like you know AI stuff uh, on on log analysis to try and do uh, anomaly detection or or, uh, or whatever, and that is that is not even the, you know I mean we do some of that, um, but that's not not really the principal thing that we do. So the the principal thing that we do is you know uh, we we use things like core match on on really small amounts of data, like literally in some many cases literally the output of the AWS API, right? Mm -hmm. And the AWS API will give you some JSON. Uh, and uh, you know, once you have some JSON, you've got a data structure. And if you want to know interesting things about that data structure, like yeah, core match data log, pretty good. Um, and and so we use that for. And, and application security does not have as many problems like that. There are exotic niches of application security that um, that are, are fortunately becoming more and more popular. Like I'm I'm very excited about these, where they'll do things like you know they'll try and do um, they'll try and do static analysis um, to find. Um, vulnerabilities in applications, uh, and historically those have been super limited. Those have been basically, you know, only barely more sophisticated than a regular expression. Um, although, as we may get to later, I love regular expressions. That would be slight to regular expressions. Just more that you know, it's not particularly smart. Um, and you know, these days you can do things like, uh, you know, you can, uh, I don't know, that's maybe detect use after freeze or something like that, where you call a particular method and then you're still messing with that with that pointer afterwards. Um, and, and that's getting, uh, and, and those techniques use something, you know, not dissimilar from like a core match or, or, or something similar to that. Interesting. And, and so you mentioned core logic too, and you, you mentioned regexes. I saw that you made a post called regex crosswords, and uh, I was wondering if you could tell me about what that what that is. And uh, sure. Um, so there's a, a uh, I guess a, a game or a puzzle, whatever you want to call it, and it's uh, I think regex-crossword.com, um, and it's it's done by uh, two really awesome people, and they with, effectively the uh, the idea of the game is to me it, it reminds me of Sudoku, uh, except that you know how in Sudoku um, the rules are, are implicit because they're always the same, um, but what happens is you get this grid, um, and uh, on the, uh, the the sides of the grid. It, it shows a particular regex. And so the idea is that you fill out the grid the way that you would fill out a Sudoku grid, uh, except that the, uh, you know, every row and column has to match the regex at that <laughs> row and column. Um, and uh, because I'm a broken human being who hates fun, uh, I, uh, I looked at these puzzles and I'm like, I'm going to teach a computer how to do it. Like, this is nice. You know, sure. I did the tutorial. Um, but I'm also a completionist. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who will, you know, I, I don't play like a ton of video games, but like when I do grab a video game, I'm going to 100% that. Like whatever achievement it is you can get in that, I don't care what it is, I'm going to get it. Um, and the uh, so the, the obvious answer is, you know, um, instead of spending all this time manually um, uh, doing the puzzles, 
um, which you may find may find enjoyable and more power to you. Um, but I wrote a computer program that does that instead. So, um, and the way that that works is um, uh, when you, when you think about you know, and I already of course I described it as Sudoku, um, which which uh, for a lot of people who have looked at you know the tutorials for for CoreLogic that will immediately make them think of CoreLogic the way that it made me think of CoreLogic. Um, and so effectively, uh, you know, the way it works is I start by parsing the regular expression into its um, constituent components. Um, I didn't even have to do any work for that because I use the um, uh, in test chuck, which is a, an extension library for test chuck. Um, there is a um, regex generator, so you give it a regular expression, uh, and it will it will generate um, examples matching that regular expression. Uh, in order to do that, they also had to parse. Um, Parse, parse, the, uh, <laughs> uh, parse the regular expression. So I, I forklifted the, the parser from there. Uh, again, probably had to create a couple of, uh, of mystery uh, issues. We, we've been talking, you know, this recurring theme is uh, LVH posts mystery issues where uh, the author is like, yes, but please tell me why. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so created a couple of, uh, you know, I think we, we created a couple of changes in, in, uh, in test chuck that I don't think would ever matter if you are not using test check off label, uh, but why wouldn't you use test check off label? Um, and so we, uh, so you parse the regular expression uh, into its continued components, and then it's essentially just a recursive, uh, a recursive algorithm where you know all the way at the end um, you're going to have like a literal character or a character class, right? Um, and uh, and uh, through recursion you have you know you have a uh, a logic variable which is a, a particular square in the grid that you have to fill out. Um, and so just by, by essentially walking down that regular expression and, and, and really just you know, thinking about how the regular expression works, like what does it mean for this regular expression to match this set of characters, right? And you just sort of like walk that down. Uh, and eventually, it's a constraint propagation problem. Um, and uh, so the, the, uh, the uh, program found a couple of bugs in the sample, uh, in the sample puzzles. Um, because there are, uh, there's a handful of puzzles, like all the puzzles are supposed to be unique. Um, and, uh, there's a handful of puzzles that aren't, uh, so, uh, and we found that because CoreLogic will of course tell you when, when you've exhausted all the answers. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, you know, I was, it, I, I just, it, it came up on Hacker News and I'm like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta do this. So. Oh, that's so cool. It's, it's like, why, why solve one puzzle where you can write something to solve all future puzzles. It's, yeah, exactly. it's fun, but it's and, also anti-fun. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, you, you, you got it exactly. That is, that is exactly how I feel about this. Um, and, uh, and the beauty of it is, and this is something that I'm, I'm really happy that, um, that it has popped into existence. I know it's, it's somewhat controversial, but GraalVM's uh, uh, native image. Um, so I produced a, uh, an ELF binary um, for that, so uh, you know, I I, I like uh, you know Depth Eden and, and the Closure CLI. Like, yes, it is a lot easier to get started with with uh, with Closure now for for a lot of people. Um, but there are a few things that are easier than running an ELF binary. Uh, so I mean, I guess unless you're on macOS or Windows, but um, and so you know that that has really uh, enabled that uh, dinky experiment that nobody cares about uh, to, to you know, kind of like increase its reach. But we also use that for, for more serious uses. So there's also like these little tiny internal tools where, you know, somebody's talking about how, um, I don't know, some, something that's come up a couple of times is, you know, we've got this 
random JSON in a super gross format coming off of, I don't know, some weird router API, right? Mm -hmm. And what I really want to know is what are all the public IPs in this thing, right? And so one way to do that is to sort of like painstakingly trawl through, you know, 12 megabytes of, of, of JSON. Uh, and the other way to do that is you write a, a you know, a Spectre, um, a Spectre navigator that goes to the leaves of the tree and just matches a regex on IPs and then you already have that. So what we've done a couple of times now is write, you know, you, you hear someone with this, with this problem and as a closure programmer, you're thinking like, wow, this would be so easy if you could just execute like a little bit of closure right there, right? Like in your right. shell, that's where I need it. Um, and that person isn't a closure programmer, doesn't want to be a closure programmer. Uh, I mean, they might in the abstract want to be a closure programmer, but they don't want to be a closure programmer right now to solve this problem that they have right now. Uh, and so the ability to, to instead go like, guess what? Here's a three megabyte binary and you just put it right there in your shell pipeline and it will make you happy. Um, and, and, and that's been, that's been tremendously powerful for, for us. That's been, I'm, I'm really super happy. There, there are caveats. Uh, I should have looked up the, uh, the closure, uh, issue, uh, beforehand, but, uh, you're, you might know it by heart because I, I think you, uh, you rewrote the patch for the, the locking, um, the locking macro. Yeah. That's yeah. Stopping me from doing 1.10, man. Like, come on, get on it. <laughs> I think, I think that's being looked at, uh, um, soon. So. So hopefully there'll be a, a nice answer there. But that's really cool. You so you you take these little data munging scripts that you write in closure, and then you kind of operationalize them and package them up in a nice uh, with a nice bow on top, and you distribute a binary, and boom! Now everybody's using closure. That's yep. pretty cool. Startup time won't startup time. Right, like yeah, native images, you know, native images is so ridiculously fast because it, it it effectively writes a, a heap image to disk. Um, so you know, it's 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 effectively instant. Like it's it's my understanding is that for I haven't benchmarked this personally, but it's like even faster than than like Lumo. So it is it's uh, it's pretty good. Nice. Well, um... and the the produced binary. Sorry, final point. The produced binaries. This is actually it's final point, but by far the most important. Um, the um, the produced binaries are typically smaller than what Go will produce, and of course, it's other. I mean, it's nice that things are you know functional and make people happy and yada yada yada. Well, it's far more important is that you beat Go at something. So uh, <laughs> that's that's what matters at the end of the day. That's great. I didn't realize that. I thought they would be uh, you know in the in the same ballpark, but just slightly slightly fatter, but that's great. It, so it, it turns so something that um, that people sometimes forget about the way that Go works is that like the um, uh, the Go stacks are not the C stack. So every time like even a fairly small Go binary needs you know we're we're, we're talking you know like single digit megabytes right like very it's still pretty small um, but you still need like quite a bit of runtime machinery um, to run any kind of Go program uh, and so so similar and obviously the same is true for native image so like I'm not saying it's like an order of magnitude difference. Uh, but like I've definitely produced like a three megabyte binary, and then you know Go shows up with I don't know thirty, uh, so uh, it's it's, uh, it's very satisfying. Uh, as you might be able to tell, there's there's like a um, there's uh, Tom and I uh, are uh, big personalities when we are put next to each other, uh, and uh, we we tend to uh, we tend to make progress through through conflict, and it's it's joshing. It's like you know it's friendly, playful. This, that, and the other thing, but it is, it is, uh, it is definitely on. Uh, in particular, when I can take jabs and go. <laughs> nice. 
and you are a board member of Closurists Together. I was wondering if you can give our viewers an overview of the organization and uh, your, your role with it. Sure. Um, so Closures Together is a project um, which aims to improve the closure community primarily by sponsoring um, the development of open source projects. Um, so there are other um, other projects like that, like, for example, uh, uh, Rubius Together is a, uh, is a fairly well-known one. Uh, and kind of the, the core idea is, you know, there are all of these pieces of, of infrastructure, software that de facto we've all come to rely on. Uh, and there's this, this, this paradox where because everyone relies on them, no individual is responsible for them or one individual is responsible for them, but nobody's really supporting them uh, particularly well. So like, you know, the things that come to mind are, are you know, tools like uh, Lining and, and, and uh, Cider, for example, where uh, I'm, I'm sure the, I haven't seen the results for this year's um, uh, for this year's closure uh, closure survey, but uh, I'm sure that Cider will once again prove to be a very important um, tool for for closure development. Um, and but the thing is, you know, it's like Bojidar is just doing some stuff, right? And I love the fact that Bojidar is doing some stuff, but I also want to make sure that we're not, you know, taking advantage of that. Having been certainly on the um, on the receiving end of uh, of you know um, open source maintainership and like kind of being on the brink of burnout uh, because of that. So, um, so yeah, the idea is, you know, uh, financially sponsor, uh, there are other ways that we can help, but financially sponsor is sort of like the obvious one. Um, different projects that are important to the closure community. Um, so like, for example, most recently, I mean, we're, we're sponsoring uh, Ring, we're sponsoring Calva, um, which is uh, an, another uh, editor environment. Um, we're sponsoring, uh, sorry, I should look these up in advance, but I'm, I'm blanking all of them now, but, um, you know, we're sponsoring Fireplace and in the past we sponsored Cider and all of these other, you know, really important core things that kind of go unloved paradoxically because everyone needs them. Sure. It's, it's like core infrastructure in the, in the closure community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so for, for the longest time, um, so first of all, Clojars is uh, is sort of like a, a sibling project to that, which is, again is you know another perfect example of uh, of uh, something that everyone kind of relies on and everyone expects that to just sort of work, uh, and that doesn't happen by accident. That happens through um, you know the blood, sweat, and tears of uh, fine people like Daniel Compton, like Toby Crawley. I'm sure I'm forgetting a whole bunch of people there, not, not intentional. Um, and you know, someone needs to do that, right? Like somebody needs to own all that, and that's that's kind of our goal. Um, and so, one of the things that's changing there um, recently is, uh, up until recently, we were um, what's called a fiscal sponsoree, um, which effectively means that there is a a different organization, in our case, the Software Freedom Conservancy, um, who is the the sort of like legal entity under which we're organized, and we're effectively a committee underneath, you know, that that larger entity. Um, and so they take care of stuff like, you know, filing taxes and, and legal review and, and all of that. Um, and we operate within them um, in order to, you know, be able to do what we do. Um, and, you know, for a myriad of, of operational reasons, um, we're, we're currently in the process of uh, transitioning all of that into a, a separate legal entity. Um, you know, if you look at the, the style of thing that the Software Freedom Conservancy does, um, you know, they're, they're, they're really focused on, on helping you know, kind of individual projects and closures together is, is kind of like a odd duck out there. Um, and, you know, given the uh, success that the project has had, but also the flexibility that we would like uh, in being able to serve the closure community, um, things like, you know, people have asked for smaller grants, um, which is, 
something that we want to be able to accomplish, but it's also really hard to do when you're dependent on someone else for, let's say, contract review, right? Like, so we're kind of putting like an undue burden kind of on, on them. Uh, and because of that, we're moving, we're moving that into a separate legal entity, which has now been created. Um, so we, we're the Closures Together Foundation, um, a, uh, a non-share corporation, I believe is the technical term in the beautiful state of Delaware. Um, and uh, we're, we've, we've currently applied for our 501c6 status, uh, which is a, a special kind of um, uh, nonprofit um, that is, uh, it's like a trade association. So like the, the Linux Foundation or and a, a Rubius together actually are, are two examples of other 501c6s. Well, congratulations. That's really, that's really exciting. And I, I, hope, uh, I hope people will not only see the fruits of, of that kind of support, but also support an, or, or an organization like Closures Together. That's uh, that's that's really great. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 a big fan. It's so I am I am technically the president, which is a uh, title that I've managed to somehow accrue by accident. Uh, you know, the 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 real um, the person who really deserves all the credit is is Daniel Compton. Like he's been just a tireless force of nature in all of this. Um, so, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's going, uh, we, we have a Stripe account, uh, we can take credit card payments. Uh, we have a <laughs> PayPal account as of literally yesterday, uh, or at least a working PayPal account as of literally yesterday. Uh, and so we're, we're kind of slowly rolling that over. Uh, there, there's still going to be, we're going to be involved with the software creating and servicing for, for quite a while. Um, for legal reasons, they can't just give all of the money that was previously given to closures together, um, to the new organization because. They're a 501c3, we're a 501c6. Those are different enough that you can't just do that. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's still going to be some disbursements coming from from uh, software freedom conservancy. But you know, the goal is that moving forward, we're we're all in the closures together foundation. Other than that, like this isn't uh, uh, you know just in case anyone's uh, you know hearing this and thinking you know this is a coup. This is obviously a coup. Uh, it is, uh, it is, you know, the entire board is, is moving over, right? Like it's the same people, we're doing the same things. Uh, it's, it's really just a, an administrative change. Uh, and, and one more, so in addition to, um, yes, please contribute. Uh, I think we do good work. Uh, we would like to do more good work. Um, but in addition to that, if you have any uh, either suggestions or complaints or, you know, things that you feel like didn't go entirely well, um, please tell us about them. Uh, we do actually want to hear. Uh, odds are, honestly, that we're already familiar with them, but, uh, and, and uh, trust me, nobody is more frustrated except maybe Daniel Compton uh, about, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, the things that we haven't been able to do. But now, given, given our new organization, I think that, you know, we're going to have a lot more flexibility. Uh, and so uh, I, I would like to, I can't say that we're going to do every idea that people come up with because, you know, operational constraints are still real. Um, but I, I do really, you know, uh, closures together is supposed to support the closure community. And if we don't listen to what people want, then in what meaningful sense are we really doing that? Yeah. And even if, uh, you know, even if you, you, you think you might know the issues that, you know, face, face people, and even, even if you've heard them a hundred times, it, it really never, well, it can hurt to hear, hear them a <laughs> hundred and one times, but, but, you know, there's always the risk that, it's an, an issue that you're not aware of and you know it would just be a shame if you know you couldn't make uh, uh, make a dent in you know so in, a, in a problem but that's that's really cool I, I, I wish wish the best for for that organization um, do you get involved in hiring um, 
closureists on either side of the hiring equation, whether you're um, um, whether you're being hired or uh, are hiring people. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I've I've, I've been on um, either side, and you know I hear a lot about closure being difficult to hire for, and I'm just curious to get somebody else's opinion on that. Oh, man, I have a lot of opinions about hiring. Um, so uh, let's see. First of all, from a, um, we help our customers. I would say our customers. I mean, a lot of Corus customers hire, um, and but that those are for you know those are for security engineering roles, right? Hmm. And so unless that customer was a, a dyed in the wool closure customer, then or dyed in the wool closure user, then it, you know we wouldn't specifically be looking for for closure skills there. Um, but we do, you know, as I mentioned, we do use um, closure heavily internally uh, at Latacora, particularly in my team, um, and uh, and so for for that, we definitely hire um, for for party owners. Um, and so the the way that we um, that we do that um, is very much similar to the way that we've done that at previous ventures. So um, uh, most of the founders of Latacora came from a company called Matasano. Um, they hired effectively the way that I'm about to describe. Uh, and my last day job was uh, at Rackspace, uh, where we had uh, a team that built uh, a, a uh, internal closure application, um, and we hired the same way. So um, the the uh, completely mind blown thing that I'm about to tell you is, hang on, hold on to your butts. Is <clears throat> how about if you want to know if someone is good at doing a particular thing? then you ask them to do a reasonable facsimile of that thing, and then you see if they did it, which sounds like bananas if you put it like that, right? But then you look at like every single job interview process. I mean, I'm painting everything with a broad brush and I shouldn't do that, but so many job interview processes just have so little to do with the actual day-to-day -day work that you want people to do, right? Like when's the last time you had to implement, you know, a red black tree inversion on a right i was just gonna that ask you happen in my day job <laughs> right um you know i'll tell you what happens in my day job write a lambda that reads a file off s3 and goes find some ip addresses in it right like that happens in my day job which is exactly <laughs> why that is a work sample test that we ask people to do um so uh you know so there, there's a myriad of ways that um that uh there's, there's a lot of things that go into doing work sample testing well um and so one is, I think the most important one is, you know, have it be a reasonable facsimile of what you need people to do. Um, obviously, you want it to be scoped. You know, it, it is still a facsimile. You obviously can't inject people into a, uh, you know, into a particular Jira ticket that you happen to be dealing with that week. Uh, I mean, companies do do that, but that's obviously unethical. Um, you you want that test to be repeatable, uh, so you want you know you want it to be consistent. You want to make sure that you're getting the same results every time. You want there to be a rubric, um, so you want you know uh, getting a getting a test back. You you want to be able to like look at that, and there should be a, like an unambiguous score for that test, right? And so one of the things that we do is we'll actually typically have um, two different people score independently, and if they disagree, like we're going to talk about why we disagree. Um, and you know, pretty often we'll we'll find bugs that way, right? Like we'll say like, oh, you know, um, you counted them as having found this particular vulnerability, and in reality, if you look at the description, they don't really get it, right? Or you know, you discounted this finding. The other way around works too, right? Like you discounted this finding because their their description is a little weird, but if you look at like what they actually got, they definitely got the bug. So you should credit them for that. 
Um, so you should have a rubric. You should make that consistent as make the scoring consistent as well. Um, and then uh, we also make uh, we make everyone um, do it. So we've you know made hires um, that are more senior people that are known quantities, right? Like we've worked with them for the better part of a decade or whatever. We still make them do the work sample test um, because it's important to be able to benchmark. Right. You can say, um, you know, like I, I, this is what a senior engineer looks like when they try to do this. This is how long they take. Right. Um, so, yeah, sorry, that was a lot of words, but no, I will talk here off about work sample tests. That's interesting. Uh, the the work sample test has to be small enough to be um, to be to be fair to give somebody who's you know taking time, unpaid time to. Uh, you know, to, to interview with you, but, but it also has to be just large enough to be meaningful. So I think, I think deploying the lambdas, that's, that's a great example of, you know, I think somebody who, who can get through, um, get through deploying a lambda with all the associated things that are entangled with the lambda. That's, that's a minimal level of heroism that you need right, right. to to be employed. So and, and so one of the one of the ways that we um, that we offset that I mean you, you raise an excellent point right like it is one of the core ideas that we're trying to accomplish with work sample testing is um, you know debiasing right um, and yes diversity comes from that like you know being able to to try and systematically uh, eradicate bias has diversity uh, advantages that are that are good in and of itself. Um, but there's also an advantage to, to us as an employer, right? Because some of the, the smartest people that I've ever hired, you look at their resume and they were completely unhirable, right? Like any normal functioning recruiting org will just not even call them back, right? Like we've, we've hired people, you know, I know people where their last job was like literally landscaper. And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't like some, you know, like some hipster vanity um, you know, he wasn't secretly uh, an infrastructure engineer, right? Like, he was not like some kind of vanity title. Literally, dude mowed lawns, right? Uh, and uh, it, he, I don't care because it turns out he's ridiculously good at the job that I need him to do. But like, you know, be honest. Can you think of a lot of companies where somebody shows up where their last job is, you know, I worked at so-and-so landscaping and my job was mowing lawns and I would like a job writing lambdas now, please? Right? Who cares if they're good at writing lambdas? Sorry, that, that came out wrong. What I mean is, who cares that they were previously a landscaper if they could do the job of writing lambdas? Right? I mean, it makes sense. I'm thinking about my own experience as uh, you know, I went I went to school for for piano performance and orchestral conducting, but somewhere along the the line, I had to transition into uh, you know writing lambdas. But um. You know, I'm thinking that the first job I ever had was was editing PHP scripts that were running Medicare flu reports like on a monthly basis, and they were just broken. And I I unbroke them, but no nobody nobody asked whether I could, you know, play a Chopin etude. They asked if I can fix the fix the PHP, and yeah, yeah, exactly. There's just plenty of cases like that where you know you have these. Um, uh, there, there's a, a really awesome company out in Indianapolis um, called uh, Woven Teams. So Woven, like like a loom or mm -hmm. you know like tapestry, um, and uh, and so they do work sample testing as a service, right? Like you can just you know hire them and they will they will um, uh, do all sorts of work sample tests for you. And um, they, uh, I think the term they use is diamonds in the rough uh, or something like that, where 
um, they, you know, they, they specifically bank on this idea of, no, 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 you're going to hire excellent qualified candidates that your recruiting org would never have looked at. Like your third party recruiter never would have looked at them. Right. Um, and you know, that, that is, that is empirically a mistake, right? Like, yeah, sure. There are, you know, there are diversity and inclusion benefits and, and I'm not trying to discount those. Those are awesome. But also from a, from a, just from a hiring perspective, right? Like particularly if you're in an industry where, um, like in, in security in particular, but per, this counts for, for engineering in general, I keep hearing everyone saying that there's this, you know, there's this, this shortage and that there's, you know, the massive supply and demand problem. And then simultaneously, you're willing to exclude the vast majority of, of your potential hiring pool. Like, well, this is completely obscene, right? And, and, and I know it sounds, you know, I'm, 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 I'm joking because I'm, I, I really, what I really want to see happen is more people do work sample tests. And I really, what I really want to see happen is, you know, our profession, um, engineering in general, but but um, software engineering in general, but also security in the particular. Like, yeah, I want to see more women. I want to see more people of color. Um, so there's there's you know I'm 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 making fun of it a little bit, but in reality, it's a tragedy, right? Like there are, there are so many problems that we could be solving as humanity, and we're not because you know some poor guy worked at a taco shop or you know was a dietitian beforehand and apparently that disqualifies them from from living their best right. life you can't get past hr i mean how many times have you had to to talk to hr that say hey please put this resume through i know this person can can do what we need them to do but their resume might not reflect reflect the exact things that were on a job listing. I mean, it happens happens every day. But... Uh, Patrick McKenzie um, from uh, so his blog is at calzameus.com um, has a, a truly wonderful blog post um, that I uh, you know I, I I could never do it justice. But the uh, it's a, a blog post about um, uh, compensation negotiation in particular. And what's really interesting is there's a lot of you know tidbits in there that. Um, kind of talk about the the other side of that negotiation, the other side of that uh, interaction. And, and what I've found is that, you know, there's a lot of people, um, particularly if you don't have the benefit of, you know, coming in with a great network, right? If you don't have the benefit of, of you know, this is, this is one of the reasons that people uh, are, are so, you know, so um, excited about having gone to Stanford or MIT, right? Like, you know, sure, those are I'm sure that they have uh, excellent educational value too, um, but there's you know there's tremendous value in in, in having an in and having a, a sherpa for lack of a better term. Um, and the you know one of the I, I don't know if it's in that blog post, but certainly one of the things that I I'm fairly certain I've heard Patrick say um, is uh, is you know one of the things that people forget is that phone screens are there because. In, at least in large enough orgs, right? Phone screens are the cheapest way to get uh, a negative signal on more than 50% of hires, right? And so to the, which, you know, it's, it's very brutal when you put it that way, but it's absolutely the way that, you know, someone, someone out there is looking at their funnel and this is the way that they're thinking about it, right? What they can say is we are super selective. Yes, our company only hires the A players. We hire the best of the best. And the way that I know that is we kick more than two thirds of people out by a phone screen, right. which is done by someone who does not, you know, respectfully, like I, I'm sure that there's lots of skills that those people have, but a lot of them, you know, a lot of the people doing phone screens don't really know how computers work, right? Like they're, they're not capable of doing the job that they're, that they're conducting the interview for. And so you, you, know, you don't say the magical shibboleth, even though you got an answer that any engineer would have gone like, yeah, okay, obviously it's the right answer. Or like, you know, you, you 
you interpreted the question in a different way than, than we intended it, but like, you know, you didn't give the first paragraph off of Wikipedia and suddenly you never hear from them again, right? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's just very frustrating to me. So I, I hope that work sample tests win. And then one of the, so the, the reason my, 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 um, my uh, impassioned plea uh, to people who are in a position, especially startups, to, to, to hire um, um, some folks is, you know, first of all, obviously not for maybe your first hire, but really consider training people up. Um, you know, there, I remember um, one of my, uh, one, one of the folks I, I, uh, I met many years ago, he kept telling me like, oh yeah, I'm just a designer. You know, I, I just, you know, I just mess around with CSS. I don't, I'm not really a programmer. <laughs> anyway, well, you know, that guy, that guy developed like, you know, entire applications in, in, in the front end that any reasonable person would look at that. Like, yeah, <laughs> programmer. Hate to break it to you, man. Um, but um, so they're, they're just. <sighs> well, if you can yeah, center a div. I got a 401k for you. <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, I have to look it up every time. Um, but yeah, there is, uh, you know, it, it, the impassioned plea is like, you know, really consider um, uh, hiring people um, off of, you know, without um, you know, being blinded by their resume. Um, we, we actually do resume blind hiring. There are several people that are on my team right now that literally never sent a resume. Some people sent one anyway. Um, and uh, you know, it's. I think. I think it's. It's. It's almost a moral. Actually, no. To me, it's moral imperative. I'm not saying you know everyone has to share my my value system, but um, you know, to me, it's 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 almost a moral imperative. Like if you're if you're perpetuating this, like consider the impact of what you're doing. It's interesting to think that in in classical music, the blind work sample test that's standard practice. You have a you have an audition where people, you know, instrumentalists will sit behind a screen and they all play the same, you know, set of four or five excerpts and somebody listens to that all day, maybe 200 applicants and you don't know who they are on the other side. You don't know you don't know who's operating the instrument, but you know, it'll be clear. That can be brutal when there's a lot of when the when the applicant pool is huge, but um well, yeah. so it Two things. First of all, if if I, I don't know if this is if this is true, but my understanding is that for um, you, know, you give the example of, of blind auditions, um, that wasn't always the case. And like as soon as that became the the, the standard, then suddenly you saw like the the ratio of women um, the the ratio of women solists go you know basically to fifty percent or even higher now. Right. Um, and uh, so, first of all, like you know, I, I uh, unfortunately that data is not always public because obviously it, it happens in large companies uh, that. Um, you know, are just going to polish all their HR stats, um, but uh, you can see similar figures uh, if you if you try. Um, and then secondly, uh, two things. I think I mentioned earlier, or, or maybe I forgot. Um, you mentioned earlier that something that's really important is to to sort of you want your work sample test to be long enough that you get real signal out of it, but you also want it to be short enough that's still reasonable to ask it to do for for someone to do. You know, given that they're doing you know they're doing it unpaid. Um, and uh, one, there, there, one way that we address that problem is we also don't do a traditional interview, right? Like there is no portion where I sit in the room and I ask you to explain Paxos to me. Um, so uh, we, 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 you know, we do ask people to like, you know, fly out. But the, at that point, it's really just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to try and convince you not to work. I'm going to make damn sure that whatever it is that would make you unhappy here, you knew about it beforehand, right? Like it's almost like I'm, it's the, the anti-pitch. Um, 
And, you know, it is definitely not a technical qualifier or a qualifier of any kind. Like, obviously, if you sexually or ask one of my employees during the interview, you know, maybe we're not going to give you an offer letter. But, um, but yeah, so one, that, that's one. We, we just don't do that. Um, and then secondly, one thing that I found is, you know, if you consider the true cost of running a classic interview of like, you know, eight hours where you've got, uh, you know, somewhere between what, four and a dozen engineers that are, are not, you know, not doing their regular day jobs and you start adding up how much all of that costs. The, the, to, in my perspective, the work sample test is, is a steal. Like it's, it's almost unbelievable how cheap it is. Right. Uh, because, you know, I just, it's a, for, for our work sample test, um, you know, a lot of our, um, uh, most of our staff need to be able to reason about application security a little bit. Obviously if we're working on cloud security. I don't need you to be an application security experts. Um, but there are certainly things in cloud security that you're never going to look at the same way again if you understand the, the sort of like the exploitation application security side of things. So um, what we do is we literally give you an AWS, um, like an IAM credential, like you get a user, you know, you get an IKEA and a secret access key and, you know, here's, have at it. And it's like a real application deployed for realsies on, um, uh, with like an ALV and ECS. Uh, and you go find some bugs in there. And why do we do that? Because, you know, reasonable facsimile. Um, and how much does that cost? Uh, I don't know. It's like one EC2 instance and an ALB, and we run it for, what, a week? Uh, you know, if you compare that to the, the real test of, of, uh, of if you, sorry, if you compare that to the alternative of running a traditional interview, and if you compare that to the cost of hiring someone based on effectively no signal, effectively all noise, um, this is, I'm sure that this is a controversial opinion, but like I am sincerely convinced that the vast majority of um, of, uh, of interviews, of on-site interviews, are literally not predictive of success. Like you might as well just flip a coin. Um, like whatever the the prior distribution is, you know, like if you would have, uh, you know, whatever the weighted coin equivalent of that is, if you pass 25% of people, fine, flip two coins. That is that is going to be just as good as your interview. Uh, and I have some data to prove that. Unfortunately, like I said earlier, a lot of large corporations are not just willing to publish all very HR stuff. Um, but yeah, it's you know, I'm, we're the uh, a lot of people are like sh almost shocked, like especially hiring managers, are, like shocked when I tell them that. But like you know, we're practicing what we're preaching, right? Like if I'm wrong, I'm willing to bet the farm on it. Um, so you you might be preaching to the choir, but that I mean that I that resonates true based on my my limited experience. We. When we were, um, we were, I was working with an ops team, and we were hiring for uh, for ops positions, and our our standard work sample test was well. First, first of all, our test was a work sample test. It wasn't a you know, show me your your stars on GitHub or any you know meaningless uh, signal like that. But we we asked people, um, please deploy a uh, a load balancer in front of two instances serving like either you know either some basic rails thing or a static uh, static page it doesn't matter we were we were really more interested in the you know how they deployed a replicated application but it was kind of the opposite of what you did you, you you're giving iam credentials and saying have at it and we eat the costs but we we would ask somebody to spin up those services and then we would just compensate them if if they send a they send us a receipt you know whatever it was it usually was you know a couple dollars or, or less but you know we we didn't believe that people should people should pay for pay for that stuff i've seen a lot oh, yeah. of work sample tests now that where uh where you know you'll 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 be 
you'll receive a nominal fee, like three hundred or five hundred dollars, just for the, just as respect for your time. Yeah, that, I mean that makes sense. There's um, there's definitely um, uh, I think reasons to go one way or the other. One thing that's nice is that you know as long as you keep it like obviously if you keep it at, at a a reasonably small amount, then you can avoid a lot of um, a lot of um, uh, administrative problems with like you know do I need a W nine from you? Um, but um, or sorry, I nine whatever the one is where you give me your social security number. Um, but uh, so, <laughs> I think you just got audited. Right? Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, so, but we don't. I mean, we so we currently don't compensate. Um, um, uh, we currently don't compensate applicants for that. Um, the flip side of that, though, is that you do get um, uh, an awful lot of uh, personal coaching time, um, which we found like a lot for a lot of people is is really helpful. So, like you know, if you if there are parts on a test that you don't do well on and you want to know what they are then like I will happily walk you through sort of like, you know, if you want to learn more about that, then go do this, that, and the other thing. Um, so, you know, we do that, um, I guess, more to more sort of like in kind sort of thing. And we tend to find that people are more appreciative of that than, um, than, than a, a check. But yeah, it's, it, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the main one thing that I, I, I kind of want to avoid, it's not like I'm against the idea of, of directly compensating people, um, but it's that I really want to see work sample tests being picked out uh, more and in more places. And, uh, it's possible that my, you know, my experiences have been, uh, not particularly median, but I think that there are so many large companies where, um, they could certainly, um, it, it would be great for them and the rest of society. Uh, if they, uh, if they, you know, fix a bunch of the, the obvious problems with their, with their hiring pipeline in particular around bias. Um, and, uh, you know, if you start, you know, I, I, I know that there are companies where, uh, if I had gone to HR, like, hey, by the way, I'm going to start paying people to interview, um, then uh, then they would have, you know, the, we had plenty of trouble already just telling them, like, hey, by the way, we're going to do a work sample test instead of a traditional, uh, you know, set of interviews. That was hard enough. If I say that I'm going to have to pay them, then that's, that, I think that, that wouldn't have flown, which is absurd, right? I appreciate that that is absurd because at the same time, that same company, they will, you know, they'll, They'll, uh, that same person will say, there's no way we're paying these people $350 in order to do a work sample test, but they will happily pay them, you know, $1,700 to fly them transatlantically for an onsite. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that this is, this is, I'm not saying this is rational, right? Like, it's so uh, irrational. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. Before I let you off the hook, I'm looking at my show notes and I realized I forgot to ask you to relate a experience of art, whether it's music, film, poetry, uh, anything else, but I wanted to I wanted to make sure we got that. Mine is a, is a, a piece of furniture. Um, it is the Adirondack Chair in Cypress by Tom McLaughlin. So, uh, as I just mentioned in the outro, you know, woodworking has has become. Um, uh, pretty important to me as uh, just as a self-care thing, but it's nice that you have like a self-care hobby where, you know, now I'm like churning out um, cutting boards and stuff for family and people love that stuff. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really wholesome hobby. And this particular um, chair is, is very interesting to me because if you look at it from, from sort of like first principles from sort of um, like geometrically, if you, if you've seen a, uh, an Adirondack chair before you look at this and you're like, well, that's not an Adirondack chair, right? Like from, from, again, from first principles, from like a geo, almost like mathematical perspective. But what's very interesting to me is uh, like a human looks at that. And this is what makes it to me, makes it 
particularly art, is like a human looks at that and they're like, oh yeah, that's obviously an Adirondack, right? Like you fix some of the problems with it. It's a nice, you know, it's a, it's a modern Adirondack. It's a nice Adirondack, but you fix some of the problems with it. Um, and so this is a, it's a plan. Um, you can make it yourself um, and uh, we can link to the plans in the show notes. Uh, I would not start with it uh, because there's like no cut list. Uh, so, you know, this should not be your first project. You want to be pretty comfortable already. Um, but, um, and the, the uh, Tom McLaughlin also has a show called Classic Woodworking where he built this particular chair. Uh, and that's like on ABT, ABT or AB, APT, the, um, the uh, PBS, the, the secondary PBS, the, the, uh, the, the other PBS. So you can find that show online as well. Cool. I know we I know we've discussed in the past woodworking and and power tools and hand tools and that's been sort of a, a an undercurrent the theme in the in the closure community. But I've, I don't think we've ever had somebody mention a particular type of furniture as a as art. That is super interesting, and I'll I'll make sure to get a picture of that in the uh, in the show notes. Um, I guess we're getting getting near the the top of the hour. Um, and I just wanted to ask you uh, a final question. Um, do you have any advice for us or for the listeners? Oh, man. Uh, that is, uh, that is a tough one. I'm going to start with one really, really simple one. Um, if you use AWS, consider installing AWS vault. Uh, it's a tool by 99 designs. I'll make sure Gotti has the link so you can put it in show notes. Um, it's effectively a thing where every time you use AWS credentials, now it will use a, it will mint a temporary credential and then use that one instead. Um, and this is nice because, you know, uh, one of the things that we're perpetually worried about is, um, there's, there's this, you know, giant, um, uh, sets, transitive set of dependencies that you count on. And, you know, if you're, uh, for, for most, um, programming languages, effectively, you, that means you're running code from all of those. Uh, and we're always, you know, one one overworked, um, uh, either one compromised credential uh, or, you know, one overworked open source maintainer, uh, you know, giving push access to someone else away from uh, from uh, effectively running everyone's code. And we know empirically that one of the first things they do is they go and try and steal an SSH key uh, and they try and steal AWS credentials and GCP credentials. But AWS is easier to fix because AWS Vault exists. Um, so yes, go run AWS vaults. That's the uh, that's the, the very clear you know operational go do this right now. Uh, unless I guess you're listening maybe on a train or something, um, but uh, go do that today. Um, so that is that practical advice. Uh, and then uh, the uh, the other advice is uh, take care of yourself. And like uh, mental health is uh, is real. Like um, one of the things that shocked me recently was was learning about like how. Um, U.S. life expectancy is going down, and apparently mm. the contribution to that is like 20 and 30 year olds with diseases of despair, right? Like it's you know suicide and drug addiction, um, and so you know this stuff is this stuff is uh, real. And there's a lot of people uh, in this industry, myself included, that have struggled with with you know depression and anxiety and, and all that stuff for 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 a really long time. And uh, you know uh, I. I I know that there was a time where if you had told me, you know, uh, uh, maybe do some exercise, maybe try and sleep a little better, then I would have gone like, yeah, sure, whatever, dude, thanks, I'm cured. Um, but I've tried to take that really seriously, and 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 it has helped uh, a little bit for me. I'm not going to say I'm cured, but you know, I'm I'm better. 
um, uh, you know, get a get a hobby. For me, woodworking. I love woodworking. Uh, there's been a lot of cases where, you know, working in security, occasionally you see you see the worst people, right? Like you see fraud, right? You see, uh, you know, people who are obviously up to bad things. Um, and you know, there are some kinds of fraud that are, I'm gonna say, benign, right? Like I don't know if you've ever had your credit card stolen. It sucks. It does. I know. But like at the end of the day, nothing bad happened to you, right? Mm. Your life was not ruined because your credit card was stolen. Um, your your weekend was ruined <laughs> because your credit card got stolen. Um, but there are other kinds of fraud out there uh, where you know we've been sort of you know uh, uh, we've witnessed them firsthand, and and you absolutely do see people's lives being ruined. And I don't use that term lightly. Um, and for me, you know, I tried reading fiction, and I'm two pages in, and I'm thinking about fraud, you know, and uh, I go for a walk, and I'm you know, two blocks in and I'm thinking about fraud. But let me tell you, a table saw, a table saw commands <laughs> your attention. There is no way when you're in front of a table saw that you're paying attention to anything but the table saw. Um, so, you know, and it worked for me. I'm not suggesting everyone go get the table saw, but, you know, just uh, find, find something to help you take your mind off things. Because uh, I, I don't know if we, uh, I, I don't know what, um, you know, nobody knows how long we have, um, uh, but I don't know what happens afterwards. And not particularly interested in discussing it, but I do know that you know there are a lot of people out there who are having a rough time, and that's sad. Uh, and I hope everyone, I hope everyone is a little bit happier, a little bit more joyful in life. I think that's uh, it's a good way to end. I think that's great advice. That is great advice. A lot to think about there. I uh, I really appreciate you talking to me uh, today. You're uh, an interesting character, probably a, a unicorn in the in the closure community, doing security and closure. That's a, a rarity, and um, it's just been a fascinating discussion. And I really appreciate you taking your time. Thanks, LVH. Oh, absolutely. I uh, I'm super happy to to do this. Oh, and actually, final final bit. Uh, if anyone um, wants to talk to me, I I try to be easy to talk to. Um, so if you either want you know, free opinions about security, no, no strings attached, I promise. Um, or, you know, you want to talk about, you know, careers in security or, or something like that. I, I, you know, I try to be, I try to be approachable. Um, so uh, the worst that can happen is that your email sits in my inbox and stares at me for, for a couple of days. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to pay it forward. How cool. How cool. Take advantage. You have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is brought to you by Cognitech. We're a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the CogniCast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest this week was LVH. 
You can reach out to LVH on Twitter at, wait for it, at LVH. Our host this week was Gotti Shaban, who is at Smash the Past on Twitter. That's at S-M-A-S-H-T-H-E-P-A-S-T on Twitter. Episode cover art is by me, Russ Olson, based on an original photo by Adam Tagaro. I hope I got that name right. It is such a lovely photo. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jarrett Benford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is by Ben Camphouse, who produces music as Pattern Shift. Look for it on any of the major streaming services. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.